0: together to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Our text this morning is chapter 21, verses 27 through the end of the chapter, as we see the outworkings of the plan that Paul and James put together last week that we looked at. So if you would please give attention to the reading of the holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative Word of God. Acts chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him Into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord, Lord, we ask that you would use this, your word, in our lives. We ask, O Lord, that you would use it to create faith in us, to strengthen faith in us, to teach us that we might be changed. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the pace of what we are seeing is going quite rapidly, isn't it? Last week, we had a bit of a cliffhanger. If this were some sort of television show, it would have faded out to black as Paul and James were deciding on the plan to go into the temple. And now the scene picks up again, and we're going to look again at a vignette before we look at Paul's great speech next week. But I... I don't want you to think this is a bit of an interlude or just an action sequence because what's happening here is important to the way we think about living our lives in the face of attacks. You see, if I were to say to you, the church is under attack today, I'm sure that for most of us, the first thing that comes to our mind are things like evolution, the ACLU. Secularism, a lack of morality, the government, foreign nations. We would not think of other churches. We would not think of bad theology. We would not think of a lack of fervor for Jesus Christ. We would think, I believe, primarily of attacks that occur from the outside. Rather than attacks that occur from the inside, from within the visible church, from within professing believers in America, and from within our own very hearts. You see, it's these kind of attacks that are the most dangerous. It's that kind of attack that Paul is facing here this morning. Because you see, those who are rushing quite literally to kill him are the stand-up. Religious leaders of the day. It's ironic here, we'll see in a moment, that the people who save Paul are the secular Roman authorities, the same ones that actually put the nails in our Savior. Well, let's take a look then here at what is going on and how we can perhaps be corrected at first glance. What I would like us to see as this rolls out are three things. First, we'll talk a minute about the scene. We'll remind ourselves of what is going on here and what the context is. And then second, we will look at the attack, the attack that comes against Paul. And then in conclusion, we will remind ourselves of what Paul has done and what we should do in looking at Paul's response. The scene The attack and the response. Well, let's begin then by reminding ourselves of the scene. You know, one of the great advantages of preaching continuously through a book is that we have context. But just by way of refresher, you will remember that last week we looked at Paul finally arriving in Jerusalem. And you remember that he did not arrive alone. He arrived with nine companions, companions from Greece. And from Asia, Gentile nations, Gentile leaders of Gentile churches. And he came in to bring support and relief to the church at Jerusalem. And they came in, you remember, in old-fashioned times, carrying actual huge bags of money. You'll also recall that Luke is a bit embarrassed about the whole scene because if you look back, At the beginning of chapter 21, Luke doesn't mention the money. He doesn't mention the bags. He doesn't even really mention the mission. And I think that's because we are struck with this awkward scene of Paul and his companions standing in a room with big bags of money in the middle, and the leaders of the Jerusalem church look at him and they say, You know, Paul, you're a real problem around these parts. And you'll recall we said, can you imagine how Paul must have felt not getting a thank you? It would be kind of like, moms, if you woke up this morning and the children had conspired against you to make it the most miserable morning you could imagine. Now that can happen in other days, can't it? But if it happens today, you look and perhaps even you dads look around and say, you say, it's Mother's Day. Now is the time, really, to honor your mother. It's the same sort of thing. You would think if James and the church at Jerusalem were going to be responsive and be positive anytime, now is the time. And so instead, they put together this plan that they think will solve the Paul problem. Paul didn't even know there was a Paul problem. But apparently, it's so huge, it needs to be handled right away. And James takes out his day planner and he says, this is what we're going to do, Paul. Four men taking a vow. Check. You'll pay their expenses. Check. You'll purify yourself of going in these Gentile places. Check. You'll go into the temple and show people that you really are a good Jew. Check. And you'll recall that Paul, I think being thrust into this, not knowing what to do, for the love of the church, decides to go along with the plan. Now, I want to remind you that the Bible is an exceedingly clear book, especially about things that are fundamental. About salvation. About who God is. But there are some things in the Bible that we're not so sure about. It's difficult from this text to know whether Paul did the right thing or the wrong thing. Especially now when we are faced with the situation in the temple. You see, Paul was placed in an impossible position. He was trying to honor the brothers at Jerusalem. He was trying to do what was asked of him, but you have to realize what was asked of him was to go into the temple and to make animal sacrifices. Think about that. What would you think if right now... We went into the back room and we pulled out a heifer and I said, you know what we're going to do in honor of the Old Testament, in honor of sacrifices to remember the Old Covenant, we're going to sacrifice a heifer here now for all of our sins. I think you would rightly conclude I was a bit off my rocker. That I had forgotten the Gospel that we don't need sacrifices anymore, that just as we have read in the book of Hebrews, that there is no more sacrifice for sin because Jesus has paid the price. Now you're getting a bit of a feel for how difficult a position Paul was in. Rumors are swirling around. There's lots of false information. And this is a very, very tense time of year. It is the Feast of Pentecost, and tensions are always high around feast days. It's when the Jews are always a bit agitated that they are under the Roman thumb. And you can appreciate it that at these times, even the slightest misunderstanding can explode. I'll give you a a modern illustration to help us. Some of you may be familiar with the phenomenon of celebrities and athletes putting dumb things up on Twitter. And you look at it and you say, well, you know, that doesn't really matter. So they made a a statement that's silly. But when someone puts something up that's silly about Osama bin Laden the day after he has been killed, then everyone is a bit more tense, right? Does this man understand what it's like to be an American? Does he know what we're up against? Does he remember 9-11? You see how the blood pressure can get elevated? That's what happens here at Pentecost. And so these rumors are swirling around and Paul is trying to lay low. But you see, there is a real problem. There is a powder keg here in Jerusalem. We see this later in the story. Because you see, the Roman leader just assumes that Paul is the return of a rebel. He says, aren't you that Egyptian? You know, the guy that had the 4,000 assassins and he tried to overthrow the government of Jerusalem? You see, there's always rumors of a rebellion, of an attack. The Jews at this very moment are plotting against Rome. And what better place to plot than in the temple? Because it's the one place the Romans couldn't go, in the Jewish area of the temple. The Romans were so aware of this that they had a fortress right next to the temple. If you're wondering How so many Roman soldiers got down into the the outer gate so quickly, it's because Herod built a fortress right up against the temple. Two sets of stairs were all that separated a thousand Roman soldiers from the temple. It's a very, very tense time. So what happens here then? Paul goes into the temple. He's trying to... To fulfill this vow. He's trying to lay low. He's trying to help the Jewish brothers. He's trying to make their situation of evangelism amongst Jews in Jerusalem easier. This is really hard for Paul. And in verse 27, we see that some Jews spot him. Now, these are not just any old Jews. These are Jews most likely from Ephesus. Ephesus. The text tells us it's from Asia. We think that they are from Ephesus because they actually recognize Trophimus. They know who he is, that he is a Greek. These are the same kinds of Jews that have plotted to assassinate Paul, that have stoned Paul, that have attacked Paul, that have tried to kill him so much so that he's had to escape by boat, escape by being lowered in a basket over a wall escape by being dragged away by helpers and friends. They see Paul, and they are out, literally, for blood. They see him, and they cry out, Men of Israel, help! Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine that yesterday, you're in the mall, and you're shopping for that belated Mother's Day present and you're looking around, and there's not as much as you'd hope for, and people are bustling around. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the mall, a dozen people start screaming and yelling, Help! We've got to take action now! You can imagine the confusion. Kids running. People turning. Where's the fire? What's going on? This All of this uproar occurs here in the temple. You see, they are trying to stir up trouble. And you can just imagine Paul. He probably says to himself, I just wanted to lay low. I just wanted to get this over with. I only wanted to bring some help for starving widows. Because he's seen this sort of thing before. I think he knows where it's going. He did tell us that he was prepared to die in Jerusalem. And he begins now to be attacked by these people. First, he is attacked verbally. And it's an attack that comes threefold. They say, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching against the people, against the law, and against this place. Now, this is a typical over-the-top attack. You parents will recognize these sorts of words in your household. Well, all the time, well, you never Everybody, everywhere does this, right? And your normal response is, well, I'm sure there's someone that doesn't do that. I'm sure there's something else that's different. But you see, what they are accusing Paul of is saying that all Paul is about is going and trying to destroy our religion. He's trying to do the Romans' work. He's trying to wipe us out. Everywhere he goes, he teaches everywhere, everyone against us. They're doing as much as they can to make Paul an enemy of the Jews. Now, what does this mean, then, to teach first against the people? It means that they are accusing Paul of teaching against the distinctive nature of Israel as a people. You might think of it this way. Paul is the worst anti-patriot you could ever imagine. Now I want you to imagine that accusation getting thrown out on July 4th. That's what's happening here. Paul doesn't love us. He's left us. He's abandoned. He spends all his time in heathen lands. I bet he's pro Roman. I bet he wants to shut the temple down. He doesn't care for our people at all. You know, our people are proud people the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people that God called out for himself from Egypt. You see, because their view of God, their view of God's mission revolves around them, not around Jesus. And so to them, Paul is an enemy. He is attacking the people. He's attacking the people and he's attacking the law. Now the law was near and dear to the hearts of the Jews. It was near and dear to them in the same way whether they obeyed it or not. You see, it was an institution. It's the same way, again, if I can give us a modern example, that so many in the church will fight tooth and nail you had the Ten Commandments nailed up in a courthouse and don't have any intention of obeying any of them. You see, it's a symbol. It's what sets them apart. It's what gives them authority. It's what makes the Jews better than Gentiles. They have the law. They obey. And you see, Paul is threatening this. He's saying that Gentiles can be a part of the people of God. The Gentiles can actually be saved. And that they don't need to do all of these things in the law. They don't need to make all of these sacrifices. They don't need to wear their beards a certain way. They don't need to wear their clothes a certain way. This is an attack on who the Jews are at this point. Because you see, the Jews as a people now have rejected Jesus Christ. They have nowhere left to turn but shadow. They've rejected the substance And then they raise the ante yet again. He's taught against the people. He's taught against the law and he is even against this temple. Now think about that. Recall in your mind what this temple looks like. It is not the original temple. It has been rebuilt by Herod. It is massive. It is overlaid with gold, so much so that if you viewed it from a distance in the daylight, you would be blinded by the sun reflecting off the gold. It was part marketplace, as we know, from when our Lord Jesus went to the temple. It was a place of refuge from the Romans. The temple was set up in such a fashion that it had a series of courts, kind of like if you've ever seen one of those Russian dolls, that have dolls inside dolls. The outermost court was where anyone could go. And not much was happening. And then there was a court where only Jewish women could go. Gentiles were not permitted. And then an inner court where only Jewish men could go. The women were not permitted. And then another inner court where only Jewish priests and Levites could go. No Jewish men who were not Levites, permitted. And then finally, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest only went but once a year. This was the place of renown. It defined who the Jews were. It was where they thought God lived. You recall in the scriptures, they had to be reminded over and over again. Even as the first temple was first built, Solomon reminded them and said, God doesn't live in a building. He inhabits the whole earth. And so these attacks come against Paul, that he is attacking their very being. You see, to bring a Gentile into the temple court was a death sentence. There were high placards, high as a man in Greek and Latin that said, to enter here, Gentile, means death. This is a very serious accusation. But you see, there's an irony here. Paul is in a very sticky spot. He is in a place where his Gentile friends can't help him because he is serving in a way in which they are forbidden. And he has already paid the price For the truth of the gospel. He is already compromised. And you see, it's the very fact that he is trying to obey a Jewish custom that is getting him in trouble. Now, I think some of us can relate to that, can't we? Trying to do the right thing gets us in trouble with others. Trying to be faithful. Trying to be honest trying to be kind. And when we do that, it opens us up. Because you see, when we do these things, we become vulnerable, don't we? We have to engage in a relationship with others. We have to serve and we become vulnerable to attacks. And that is when Satan makes his attacks. So if you have suffered under these kind of attacks, you need to know that the Lord is with you. And this should not be a surprise. This is the way that Satan works. He wants to get at you when you are most vulnerable. And it's ironic here that Paul has basically completed just about everything he needs to do. It's the last day that he has to go into the temple. It is the seventh days being almost completed. And the attack comes. Now... You also shouldn't be surprised that this attack comes upon Paul because it's a repetition of other attacks. You see, in nearly every city Paul has been, we have seen him be attacked. It's almost, this is almost a Jewish repeat of our Gentile incident in Ephesus, isn't it? Screaming, yelling, violence, even down to the little detail. Some people saying one thing. Some people yelling another, and nobody can figure out what's being said. Every place that Paul goes, he's falling under these attacks. But Paul isn't the only one that comes under these kind of attacks. There was another man who was attacked in quite the same way, in nearly exactly the same place. Do you remember his name? We read about him a few months ago. His name was Stephen. In nearly exactly the same place, in the temple court, Stephen was accused of never ceasing to speak words against this holy place and the law. Does that sound familiar? It's almost exactly what Paul is being accused of. To make the the matter even more sharp, Stephen was accused by Jews from outside Jerusalem, from Jews of what we call the Diaspora, from Cyprus and other places. That's where Paul is being accused of, by Jews from Asia. Both men make speeches to defend themselves. We'll look at the similarities. They both begin their speeches with the exact same words, fathers and brothers. Now, this is important because if I can point this out to you, then surely Paul knows this. And Paul knows how the incident with Stephen ended, doesn't he? He was there. He held the cloaks. And so Paul has said that he would be willing to die to be at Jerusalem, and it looks like that moment is at hand. It's the same kind of attack. It's a repeat of what has happened to Stephen. But it's also even a more significant repeat. Because you see, there was another who was attacked By the Jewish people, another who was attacked for trying to speak the gospel, for trying to convince the Jewish leaders, for standing for the truth of God's word, and that one is our Savior. And again, there's a great similarity. Look with me, if you would, to chapter 21, verse 36 the mob of the people followed Paul and look at what they cried. Away with him! Now, this is not the ancient Jewish equivalent of get out of town. This is take him off and kill him. It's exactly what they said to our Lord Jesus. They said, away with him, we would have Barabbas. Luke knows this. He wrote about it in his gospel, chapter 23, verse 18. Why do we bring up these repetitions? Is it just because that's kind of some neat information in the Bible? No, it's because when you come under attacks, Christian, you need to know that Paul has been there before you, that Stephen has been there before you, that your Lord Jesus Christ has been there before you. They have been attacked for standing for the gospel. They have been attacked for things they tried to do with right motives. They have been attacked unjustly. So you are not alone. Because you see, when we come under attacks, we believe we are alone, don't we? That there's no one who can help us. There's no one who's suffered what we've suffered. There's no one who's had so difficult a marriage. No one who's gone through the financial straits we've gone through. No one that's faced as much sickness as we have. No one who's seen the economy be like it is. No one who's seen the wars that we've seen. And in reality, when we do that, we're being a bit selfish. We're failing to see the work of God throughout the ages, protecting His people, working through the attacks that come upon them. Because you see, make no mistake here, the attack here is not just from Jews, just from some Asians. It is from the devil himself. We see that in verse 31. They didn't just want to find out what was going on. They weren't just ready to discipline Paul. They didn't want to hear the story. They were seeking to kill him. Hatred was burning in their hearts. That is the work of the one who has been a murderer from the beginning. They were ready to attack Paul. So how then does Paul respond? How can we be helped when we come under stress, when we come under attacks, when we come under difficulties? I think it would help us to see Whether we believe that Paul was right or wrong to go to the temple, I think there is something of great wisdom and great benefit in how he responds to these attacks. He could have very easily gone into a depression. I didn't want to do this in the first place. They made me, and look how it's turned out. He could have very easily attacked God. Why won't you protect me, Lord? I'm only trying to to build up your church. But instead, he reacts with calmness, with courage. And he reacts by casting himself on the Lord. First, I think it's absolutely remarkable the calmness that Paul has. Now, imagine the scene. Paul is quite literally minding his own business in the temple, fulfilling the days of purification. And screaming and yelling happens and all of a sudden men are surrounding him and they're punching him and they're kicking him and they're knocking him down and they're dragging him literally by his cloak, perhaps by his hair, dragging him by his beard outside the temple gate. They've got to get him outside of the Jewish area into the heathen Gentile area. There's dust, there's sweat, there's blood. He doesn't know who's kicking him. He doesn't know who's hitting him. He doesn't know if he will survive. And then soldiers come down and there is clanging of swords and shields. There is shouting. There are military maneuvers. And you know how Roman soldiers clear a crowd. I'm sure there is head crunching. There is probably sword swinging and threats and vile language. It is the worst rugby scrum you have ever seen in your life. And then these soldiers, a cohort is a thousand soldiers. A thousand. So even if not all of them are there, we're not talking about two or three guys. They have to actually literally pick Paul up, put him over the, his head, their heads, so that they can get him away from the crowd that seeks to still hit him and attack him. They finally get him up right to where the barracks are. He's finally safe. And Paul looks, dusts himself off. Perhaps he dabs some blood on his head. And he looks at the commander and he says, um, Excuse me, may I speak to you? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the kind of calmness that comes from that? Can you imagine the determination that would take for Paul to be that calm? May I say something to you? Because I need to address this crowd. Now, I don't know about you. I would just want to get as far away as I could possibly get from this crowd. But you see, Paul knows that this is yet another opportunity for the gospel. We'll see him seize that opportunity with both hands next week. You see, Paul knows he's in the hands of God. Paul knows that whether he lives or dies, it's up to God. The difference, friends, between Paul and between me and you when we fail is that Paul takes what he knows up here and he lives his life in accordance with it. He knows that he will live not a minute less nor a minute more than God has decreed. And so... He is willing to take this opportunity that the Lord has given to him. And he is very calm. And it may even be that he is relieved by what has happened. He knows there is no more compromise. There will be no more worrying about what James thinks. There will be no more worrying about the bad rumors in Jerusalem. The Jews have shown that they have rejected Jesus. Paul is calm as could be. There's also, I think, a great courage that Paul has here. It's not just a calmness to face a hostile crowd that had just been trying to kill you. Where does this kind of courage come from? I think the only place this kind of courage comes from is from being at peace with God. If you need courage to face your family situation, if you need courage to face your financial situation, if you need courage to face final exams, the only real place you can find that courage is in knowing that you are at peace with God. And that nothing, not bankruptcy, not infidelity, not failure, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even death. You see, when you know that, when you hold that, when you own that like Paul owns it, then you could be courageous. You can't work up this kind of courage. There are other examples of different kinds of courage in the world. Some of you saw the story about the Navy SEAL who had a vessel named after him because he exposed himself to enemy fire in order to call in assistance to his comrades. And they remarked at how calm he was over the radio. You see, that kind of courage is a courage that comes from training, from blocking out circumstances, from being one. It's not the kind of courage that comes from the gospel, from knowing that in the circumstances that we are in, God is with us. No matter what happens. That is gospel courage. That is the courage of a mother who prays, Day after day after day after day for her child who rejects the gospel. It's the courage of John Newton's mother. Could you imagine being the mother of a son that criminals would be ashamed of? He was the worst of the worst, a wicked slaver. And day after day she prayed for him, didn't give up. Augustine's mother prayed for him. Day after day after day, read him the scriptures. She had courage not to give up because she knew the Lord was her strength and shield. It's this kind of gospel courage that Paul has. Lastly, we see that Paul not only was calm, he not only had courage, but he did something that we need to do. He cast himself on the Lord. He knew that the Lord would figure this out. He knew that the Lord was in control, and no matter how it came out, God would be glorified. And think about how God responds here. Could you imagine if this story wasn't in the Bible, and you didn't know it already, if I said to you, the Apostle Paul, preacher of Jesus Christ, is going to be saved by the Roman army. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine even more that the tribune, we will hear later, his name is Claudius Lysias. He's a Greek Roman soldier. And so God has prepared it so that when Paul in all of his calmness looks at this man and says in perfect Greek, may I say something to you? The man is blown away. And he says, I thought you were this Egyptian thug. Well, of course you can speak. Think about how God has prepared this. He's prepared it perfectly. Because you see, God is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over Paul specifically. Whenever you doubt that God is in control of your life, that your life is spinning outside of control, you must remember the words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 10. My father... Who has given them to me is greater than all, not most, all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God is sovereign over your life, He will not let you go. We know that Paul responded even a bit later. Thinking perhaps back on this, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't get any more comprehensive than that. God is sovereign over your life just like He was over Paul. There's another final note of comfort here that God is not just sovereign over our lives. God is sovereign over what we think is spinning out of control. Is that how you view the world when you think about Iran and Iraq and North Korea and floods and typhoons and tsunamis? That the world is completely out of control. You see... Here in this situation, we might think God has lost control. His hand is off the wheel. The Jews are in charge. They're doing something with the temple he never expected, never wanted. But you see, that's the voice of the devil. He wants you to think that God is not in control of the world. God knows exactly what he's doing. For you see, when they drag Paul out of that temple and they shut and they lock those gates it might as well be pronounced from heaven. This is the end of the temple. You have taken my message and you have taken my messenger and you have dragged it out of the temple. And I think at this point, Luke sees that the words of our Savior, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not left here be one stone upon another. That will not be thrown down. Christian. God is in control of the big things. God is in control of the little things. God is sovereign over your life. Live that theology. Seize life with both hands. Stand for your Savior. Glorify God with all that you do. That's the kind of courage and purpose that the gospel brings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so gracious and kind to us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this this story, this narrative that we might know that you are sovereign, that you are in control, Lord, we pray that you would grant us calmness, that you would grant us courage, and that you would help us to cast ourselves upon you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.